Oh, Horatio. You look like a Terrence Malick movie. Wait, not Horatio. Yorick. Yorick. (laughs) (laughs) I knew him well. Okay. Didn't even know his name. (laughs) Here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to the now. The now. A podcast about Thomas Pynchon's gravity's rainbow and other inquiries directly related to the text. To the now. Concerning a conversation between Betty Davis and Margaret Dumont. The conversation's being incessantly interrupted by a kazoo, but as it turns out, it wasn't really a kazoo. It was Pirate Prentice instead, the sound of the engine of the plane he has hijacked and flown into the zone. It seems the counterforce is on the march. We learn that Osby is in Marseille trying to contact Blodgett. Who's, do you want to remind us who Blodgett is again? Yeah, Blodgett Waxwing is the guy who Slothrop met in part two, and he gave him that zoot suit with the interesting pedigree and sent him he's to... He's a forger? He's a forger, yeah, and okay. sent him to Switzerland, I believe. Yeah, Zurich. He had, he had the, yeah, Zurich, and then he had that weird dream, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Okay, Osby is in Marseille trying to contact Blodgett. Webley Silvernail, who is he again? Webley Silvernail works at the White Visitation. He's mm-hmm. like the dude who like taught the mice to do a singing and dancing song oh. about the nature of freedom. Okay. He's en route to Zurich, and Katya is headed to Nordhausen. As Pirate descends on the zone, we learn he has lost his X-Men ability of living in the fantasies of others. Meanwhile, somewhere below, Slothrop retrieves his harmonica from a mountain stream. How did it get there? Has he had it all along? We learn that he discovered it in the mountains, among offerings of food. It seems someone is dropping these objects for him to find. But who? Slothrop has gone all Jeremiah Johnson, growing his beard and hair long like a hippie, waltzing around naked, reading omens in flocks of birds and animal entrails, having all but given up on securing his release papers. Still, despite it all, he longs for America. There's an incident with strange graffiti, and with a drop of Slothrop's semen transmogrifying into a mandrake root, which has magical properties. The mandrake root was plucked by a magician from the piece of earth where it transformed. Then it was sought out by a man from the Committee on Idiopathic Archetypes, CIA. Mm. Meanwhile, somehow, Slothrop ends up in Sour Bummer's kitchen, dreaming of the Berkshires. We reunite with our old pal Roger Mexico as he rips down the Audubon mulling over the series of events that led him, finally, into the zone. Namely, the end of the affair with Jessica Swanlake. Spurred on by his loss of Jessica, Roger vows to help Slothrop escape the zone. Sometime after that, but before the Autobahn, Mexico was present for a meeting between Milton Gloaming and a former IG intelligence stooge named Schleim, meaning slime or mucus in German. Schleim relays information about Slothrop being under IG Farben surveillance long before the war. From all of this and more, Mexico realizes that he has been a pawn in a wicked game, controlled by pointsmen. He thinks even Jessica played a role in his manipulation. Mexico tracks down pointsmen in the new Pisces office, which is now called Twelfth House. Pointsman is in a meeting with Clive Mossmoon. Roger stands and pisses on the desk. Fleeing Twelfth House, Roger takes refuge at Pirate Prentice's. Prentice tells Roger that Milton Gloaming is part of the counterforce. As if to evidence this, Gloaming wanders in with a Schwarzkommando liaison man. Other representatives of the newly resistant Wii system appear, including Osby, Sir Stephen Dodson Truck, and Thomas Gwen Hidwee. 
The counterforce has formed, and soon Roger flashes back into the present, driving down the Autobahn towards Coxhaven, presumably pursuing a task given to him by the newly insurgent resistance. You like that? Mm-hmm. Suddenly, and this is a big episode, John, mm-hmm. the big boy. Suddenly, we are with the U.S. Army as they clear villages in Thuringia, central Germany. We are with a new character, PFC Eddie Pensiero, who I think is the first foot soldier we meet in the book. Yes. And is he the is he from Kenosha or he's no, with someone who's from Kenosha? The colonel is from right, Kenosha. Okay. Pensiero is commanded to cut his colonel's hair under the shine of a single light bulb, hand pedaled by another soldier. While preparing to commence the haircut, Pensiero hears a strange sound, something like a harmonica in the distance, which we assume is sourced from Slothrop. Without warning, we flash into the consciousness of the light bulb above the colonel and learn its life story. Byron, the name of the light bulb, was manufactured in Hungary, but shipped to Berlin shortly after. As a baby, he cherished plans of coordinating a widespread self-immolation of bulbs, a kind of mechanical light-based terrorist attack which would put the Kyrgyz light to shame. We follow Byron through his many luminary appointments. As his immortality becomes clear, he begins being monitored by Phoebus, an international light cartel, who soon become the enemy of Byron, the elite to his preterite. And Phoebus, it was real, by yeah, the well, way. I, okay, I'm okay. going to ask you about that, because right. that, that's something that blew my mind. Yeah. When Byron burns too long, the Committee on Incandescent Anomalies... CIA. Mm-hmm, ...sends a hitman to Berlin. But before... <laughs> Sorry, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> Is this like the woman with the nine-inch heels? Yeah, yeah. A hit woman, yeah. I should say. Hit individual. Yeah. But before... Byron can be assassinated, he is serendipitously pocketed by a Weimar street urchin. The urchin trades Byron to a prostitute who then screws him into a client's asshole. I don't judge. <laughs> I, just, I love it. Life is a cabaret, old chum. <laughs> yep. That's what <laughs> like said in Weimar, Germany. <laughs> One of many stops in the picaresque of Byron the Bulb. Quote, he is condemned to go on forever, knowing the truth and powerless to change anything. This episode ends with Eddie Pensiero mulling over his opportunity to slit the colonel's throat instead of cutting his hair. Next, we rejoin Katya as she rides into an unnamed town on a stolen bicycle. Soon she is set upon by a band of Schwarzkommando singing a song of paranoia. As Katya meets and speaks with Einzian, we learn more about Einzian's past with Blasero in the Sudwest. Einzian convinces Katya to tag along with the Schwarzkommando until they find Slothrop, and we get the sense that Slothrop, Katya, Einzian, and Blissero are all destined to collide once more. We'll see if that happens or not. We shift to Miklos Thanats, Greta Erdman's husband, who we last saw on the Anubis. Like Slothrop, Thanats was thrown overboard and rescued. Soon, Thanats lands on shore and enters a village populated by homosexual survivors of the Dora concentration camp. In a strange bout of something like Stockholm Syndrome, the survivors, terrified of their newfound freedom, had begun to recreate their imprisonment in the village, believing that their liberation was a banishment. Can I interrupt with one thing? Yeah, this not. reminds me of that Lars von Trier movie Mandrelay, mm-hmm. where it's it's not it's like probably the worst movie yeah, ever yeah, made. Yeah. No, but I it, like it. You're the only one. <laughs> but uh, it's about like a slave colony that is liberated by like a white liberal savior, but they have no context for framing their own freedom, so they basically still enact the dynamics of living on a plantation. Although I feel like that's not a fair analogy because like if you're gay and run a concentration camp, you lived in Weimar like a relatively free life before anyways whatever yeah uh well they're emulating not just dora but the slave labor system of mittelwerke right john Mm -hmm. at the top of this prison-like society is a man they call blissero not the actual blissero but a sort of honorific given to their leader yeah like katya to the schwartz commando blissero has almost become like a folk myth within this culture it seems that the myth of Blissero is percolating throughout the zone. Yeah, and the myth of Slothrop as well. Right. Rakata Mensch. We learn, rather strangely, that the Nats was present for the firing of the 000. zero, 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 zero. Mm-hmm. He eventually ends up with the Schwartz Commando and tells them about the firing of the 000, zero, 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 zero at Lüneburg Heath. He reveals all he knows about the Schwarzgarat and its purposes, which has a sort of galvanizing effect on the Schwartz Commando bringing together the factions that were once conflicted. We learn that the newly reunited Schwarzkommando, with the Nazis' exposition in mind, have begun construction of their own rocket. 
also, we should say that the information about like what the Schwarzkarat is and all this, it's totally withheld from the reader. So he tells the Herrero, but we reading it in case you're reading along and listening to this and I'm like, I totally missed it. You didn't yeah. miss it. It hasn't really been said yet. Yeah. I mean, that whole part, not to jump into chatting about this, but that whole part is very strange because the firing of the Quint Zero, mm-hmm. Quint... Quint Zip. Quint Zip. What do, what's Zero in German? Null. Quint Null. Funf Null. Funf Null. Um, has been pointed to as, like, perhaps the implied climax right yeah i forget and then all of a sudden it's like oh yeah it's already it's already happened it's a couple chapters back and it's like this is something that i would pay attention to deliberately if i was rereading it again but it's like yes it does kind of feel like from the beginning like they're all racing to avert this rocket from being launched yes but at least by the time we meet the schwartz commando we already know that they're looking for like salvaged parts from it which Mm -hmm. at least suggests that it has been launched Mm -hmm. right but the launching the actual launching, not chronologically, but mm-hmm. in a narrative way, does constitute the climax of the book. Right, right, right. In more ways than one. Mm. Cool. Okay. Also, like, just as a reader, to find out that some characters are learning what the mysterious device that you're trying to, as a reader, learn what it is, and then you're not told it, is very... It feels annoying. Uh, <laughs> cuckolding. Yes. Narratively. Cuxhaven. Cuxhaven. Finally, we find ourselves in a kind of fantasy reality. This is the reality of the Rocketenstadt, Rocket City. A kind of realm behind the veil of the actual happenings of the novel. A giant factory state or city of the future. Think Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Do you, do you feel that? That's how I view it, too. Okay. And even higher and higher and higher. We get later that image of like the elevator that goes forever and ever, seemingly. Right, right. Here, alternate Slotherp, with a hero squad called the Floundering Four, is set against his villain father, Broderick Slotherp, who has abstracted, that's a quote, something called the Radiant Hour from the rest of the day's 24. (laughs) So, whether or not you think the Radiant Hour is a thing or a group of people, or literally they're searching for an hour of the day that's been abstracted from the rest of the Isn't it characterized as, like, a damsel? Like, it obviously means something else, but it's like a woman they're trying to rescue. I don't know. I mean, I think that's, like, the comic book trope that it's playing into, but there is an actual quote that says it's been abstracted from the rest of the 24. Right. And it, I mean, not to be too, like, English class about it, but... It, we're, t- we're we're in a area of film imagery, mm-hmm. and it kind of recalls the whole golden hour mm-hmm. idea. Right. Okay, let me take a stab at yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what happens essentially is there's this kind of like comic book, almost like Fantastic Four thing where Slotherp's teaming up with like a guy in a zoot suit and an animatronic chess-playing robot. And then Slotherp kind of like escapes into the audience and it is presumed that this is sort of like a film playing out mm-hmm. who is watching this kind of like comic book drama and Slothrop manages to extract himself into the audience watching it. Okay, so these are almost like little skits and I'll try to go through them super quick just so you can understand what's going on. Yeah. There's Slothrop trying to contact Squaliodotzi and the Argentine anarchist crew who have hijacked the Nazi U-boat. Uh, there's one called Mom Slothrop's Letter to Ambassador Kennedy mm-hmm. which shows like Tyrone's mom super drunk writing Joe Kennedy for news of her son mm-hmm. uh, because he hasn't returned from the war. Uh, then there's a conversation between Sour Bummer and Slothrop and Seaman Bodine back in Berlin, arguing about the phrase ass backwards. Mm-hmm. Bodine sings a song, I believe, which contrasts the blackness of shit with the cold sterility of toilets. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's another toilet gag in which Slothrop, dressed up as Faye Ray, uh, is handed one of those cartoon anarchist bombs, you know, like the bowling ball bomb at the fuse, mm-hmm. uh, by a gigantic ape that looks like King Kong. A sodium he, bomb. Yes, and he plunks it in a toilet it explodes uh this kind of like flashes back to his own sort of like toilet episode uh then we cut to the loony radar men and the japanese kamikaze pilots uh the kamikaze pilots are told there's no american targets nearby they're relieved because they're not going to die in a kamikaze attack but it's implied that they do die uh 
because we cut back to Slothrop, who's in this like other town in the zone, and he finds on the cobblestones a uh, big photo of the A-bombs dropping on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which, of course, Pynchon compares to looking like a cock. Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of, like, scattered headline that's, like, MB drop Roshi that's been ripped. So you can fill it in. It's, like, bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this dates the action, I guess, to, like, August 5th, 1945. Um... Also, a kind of sad thing, if you remember Ensign Moriatori from a few chapters ago, where he's like, I can't wait, I'm heading back to Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we can kind of imply <laughs> what happened to him. Um, then there's some more toilet talk. They talk about how they or them are trying to shut off all the water in the zone. Uh, this is like a classic wartime tactic where you shut off water and electricity, but it's also a classic hippie era thing because like raids on houses would be signaled by the water being shut off so you couldn't flush drugs down the toilet. Um, I didn't know that. Then we cut to the Kenosha kid, then back to the kamikaze pilots, then to this father-son chat between Broderick and Tyrone Slothrop. I believe they're like smoking a joint mm-hmm. and they're talking about drug use and Broderick is confused that kids of Tyrone's generation are into this like what he calls keying waves, the idea yeah. of plugging into electrical outlets. Broderick says, suppose someday you plug in and go away and never come back, which kind of recalls Lyle Bland's disappearance mm-hmm. uh, from the last episode. And then finally, there's a section called Some Characteristics of Imipolex G. We learn, importantly, that the plastic is a rectile, which means it can stiffen under the appropriate stimulus. In this case, that stimulus is an electronic signal, an electron stream, whatever an electron stream is, or a projection onto the plastic of an electronic image, which is analogous to a motion picture. Uh, yes. So that so, yeah. is the end of that. <laughs> and that takes us to the end of this section. And we're going to talk about this section a lot in our uh, chat because... Mm-hmm. I think it's the strangest thing in the book yet. (laughs) Okay. So, first of all, I just wanted to give you a comment, which I do believe that the beginning of the Counterforce, the epigraph, is probably the greatest of all time. What? (laughs) Yeah. Richard M. Nixon? It was originally... Oh. Originally... I believe in the uh, galleys. Um, well, do you know what that original quote was? Or I can find it right now because Jonathan Rosenbaum mentioned it in his original review of Gravity's Rainbow. Interesting. Okay, I found it. So, uh, in the original advance of book critics, it featured lines from the Joni Mitchell song "Cactus Tree" from "Song to a Seagull." Mm-hmm. I think that Joni Mitchell. Um, it's a very interesting and contemporary person for Pinchon to have originally conceived of using, both because in this era she was obviously like a kind of, you know, phantasmic it girl of like mm-hmm. the hippie culture, but she also hated the hippie culture, right? Mm-hmm. Like even though she literally wrote the song Woodstock, mm-hmm. she was very cynical about the kind of like naive attitudes of the youth culture and uh-huh. the idea that people could kind of like fuck their way towards liberation, mm-hmm. um, which I think is... Do you want to test that theory right now? <laughs> no. Let's take a break. We're going to hit pause. And, uh... Pause. <laughs> People also group Joni Mitchell into that whole Laurel Canyon scene, well, she, which... Yeah, she was. Like, she, I mean, like... All what the... I mean, which is, a cl- like, nowadays has become a big, noited subject matter. Do you know about this? No. I believe the guy who wrote Program to Kill okay. wrote a book about Laurel Canyon, weird scenes from the canyon. That's basically says they're all CIA controlled. Yeah, it's, he, he, it's he Dave McGowan, who's the program to kill guy. Do you know about him? No. Oh, wow. I mean, we I think we talked about this in a previous episode. Maybe in the Stephen Kinzer episode way back. Mm-hmm. Where it's like there are these kind of like uh, Baroque theories that the entire like LSD culture was created to totally defang the youth movement. I mean, I've talked about this before, but I don't give the American uh, three-letter agencies that much credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that things do happen spontaneously and that things can kind of like fall apart by virtue of their own uh, ill conception. Yeah. But I'm what sure else there are we are people about? listening who are punching their keyboards right now. Yeah. Because a lot of people do strongly believe that all of this was CIA. I'm not. A, I, I'm personally least. not a paranoid person, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think you are either. Yeah. I, I tend more towards that end of things. 
But okay, I think I think that this form. I mean, we talked about this with Noah a bit, but I mm-hmm. think that that form of like hard, everything is connected paranoia mm-hmm. is itself a form of naivety, or is it is itself a kind of like cop out because it like presumes a master conspiracy to which you can always defer or refer to, mm-hmm. and I don't really think those things exist. Yeah, like I don't think I don't know if it if it necessarily implies a master conspiracy. Right. I think what we've I think it's still compatible with the the image of clandestine intelligence operations we've painted previously where some knew and some didn't. Right. Anyways, point is I think it's interesting that he used Joni Mitch- Mitchell because she's kind of like an ambivalent hippie figure in the mm-hmm. same way that I think Pynchon is kind of an ambivalent hippie figure if he's even a hippie figure. At this figure. point of the novel, perhaps you, like we've discussed with Alex Shepard, he becomes more yeah. credulous of the hippie movement De- later. Uh, okay, what else you got? Okay, I have a small observation here. Okay, there are no small observations. Sure. Just small men. So we open with Prentice flying into Berlin on a hijacked P-47. And this is something that... Spitfire, I believe. Yeah, sure. And it's, I think it's green, which has some... Someone left us a voicemail asking us to delve into the color of Gravity's Rainbow, and he ended the voicemail saying, you know what I mean. (laughs) It's like, I do not. Please (laughs) tell me what you think. I I read an essay about it that you pointed me towards from like 30 years ago. That essay's good. It is good, but I also was a little bit confused by it. Yeah. Anyway... My my question is, I think this can easily be seen as a weak point of the whole novel and the many ways it moves. But if you stop to ask yourself how something happened, how does Pirate Prentice hijack a P-47 and get it out of British airspace and into the zone? It just seems like completely impossible. And those types of difficult narrative things that other writers would feel duty to show or explain are just like yeah 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 he hijacks but i think that can also easily be yeah excused by saying like oh it's a dream world or oh it doesn't yeah i mean this is a book where a guy like gets a boner with his nose at one point (laughs) you know uh so i don't know this is the kind of shit where like if it was now there'd be a six episode hbo miniseries about like how pirate prentice got the spitfire you know yeah um where it's like, I don't even know if, it, if it's like attributable to dream logic mm-hmm. necessarily. I just don't think you have to like. You don't have to ask. Over determine every plot point. Sure. But that's also, it's also different because like you come to this stuff from like writing fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I come to this as like a reader. And as a reader, I've never really thought or cared about. It depends on the book, right? Yeah. Like if, if I'm reading a sort of like spy novel or mm-hmm. something and something feels a little like undercooked or a narrative turn feels like unearned. Yeah then it bugs me. Yeah. But again, in this, when you have like a guy fucking jerking off and making a mandrake out of it, and then like all this weird tarot imagery, and yeah. then like a penis coming out of the heavens, mm-hmm. the idea of like a guy stealing a Spitfire and flying over post-war Europe is like the least yeah. <laughs> absurd thing. I think you, I could push back on that if I wanted to. Right. Which, this, which is to say that the novel has a sort of dualistic ontology Okay. where fantastic things are situated amongst realistic things. Magical realism. And that you have to buttress the realistic movements with plausibility to enable the fantastic stuff to have its same power. But right. anyway, something interesting comes with Pirate here. And I think we're sort of like, at this point in the novel, we've begun to think that Pirate wasn't ever important. And there are little hints here that maybe he's actually more important than we could have th- ever believed. Yeah. And the reason, the, the specific context for that statement that I want to ask you about here is that Pirate at this point, seemingly the moment the war ended, has lost his talent for living in the fantasies of others. Mm-hmm. And yet he's still haunted by Franz Vandergroove, which we I don't believe when we first encountered Vondergroove, it was framed as this is one of Pirate's fantasies. Well, there's two things. Okay. Uh, first of all, there's the reading that like everything in the novel up to this point mm-hmm. is Pirate inhabiting the consciousness and all these scenes are essentially being dreamed by Pirate. Yes. And we, I, we, we, I we think talked that's about, interesting. It's interesting. We talked about it before. To me, it's one of those things where it's like 
if you want to talk about like the ontological level on which the novel is working, mm-hmm. it doesn't really change it, it for me at all. Okay. So whether or not it's happening to me is kind of irrelevant. Yeah. But Pirate meets or at least sees Franz Vondergroof when he has that vision of like the preterite mm. uh, melty birthday cake college okay. campus thing. Yeah, 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 and yeah. he sees all these kind of like people who have like failed in life mm-hmm. and uh, Franz Vondergroof is there because he is an ancestor of Katya's, right? Yes. Uh, so And because Katya's in that yeah dream exactly so there there is a even within the sort of like diegesis of the novel in a straight way Mm -hmm. that he has encountered monogrew gotcha 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 yeah that was going to be my question is how much of the book is attributable to his fugue states yeah and i I would say if you want to buy that then Mm -hmm. basically all of it till this point like in a weird way because the stuff that happens in this book as like especially with that last section we talked about we're going to talk more about Mm -hmm. and especially as we get towards the end of the book it becomes less believable and uh narratively stable and Mm -hmm. again ontologically stable Mm -hmm. um this stuff feels like it is quote really happening yeah you know i think the counterforce forming is perhaps the most like one of the most scenically real feeling totally sections and, and and even the way that like Pinchon is using literary techniques like flashbacks like with Roger Mexico it's yeah, like yeah. he's driving in the car and while driving he thinks about the thing that happened then we cut back to him driving mm-hmm. it feels so straight compared yeah. to like how other chapters of this book are built it has a causal logic yeah like he's here because of events exactly. that happened yeah that have led him to this point yeah and he pisses all over the table I, I love that scene yeah, too yeah, by yeah, the yeah. way like too. I think you kind of early in the book get this idea of Roger Mexico as being like a bit of a cynic and a bit of a dweeb yeah. and kind of like so ground down and defeated and mm-hmm. the only thing he has is like quote the love of a good woman mm-hmm. but this idea that he becomes radicalized and is like busting in like fucking Tom Green or Johnny Knoxville mm-hmm. just like pissing all over this office yeah. uh, it yeah. really gets my heart beating do you want to talk about the semen and the mandrake root yes this is clearly magic yes and we will talk about this because in the next episode I want to talk about the history of the tarot mm-hmm. and this type of occultism yeah so we'll get into it more deeply there but before you even start yeah you purport in your guide that the magician is pointsman or could be perceived as a symbol for pointsman because it's a bit counterintuitive but in like the a.e. Wadle like guide to the tarot Mm -hmm. uh the magician is actually meant to represent a form of like scientific rationality so alchemist yeah so it's like we think of a magician now in our post-enlightened world Mm -hmm. as being like the opposite of what science and enlightenment is Mm -hmm. but within the sort of mythos and cosmology of the tarot Mm -hmm. uh they are basically substitutes for one another. Now, a mandrake is this thing that was used in kind of like ancient magic or rituals mm-hmm. because it's a root that looks like a homunculus. Like it looks like a little human being, yes. basically. Um, so I don't know how that story, like all that stuff necessarily connects. Uh, I think there's one thing that's important, which is that the CIA is looking for... Yeah. the mandrake root which poisons the dog yeah and i think any noited reader would be like oh cia drugs exactly yeah i think <clears throat> a lot of people would say that this f- this is the first mention of a cia i think so and it comes up there's there's and it comes up again yeah sure, there's yeah. so many like cia acronyms in this yeah and as we talked about with stephen kinzer the cia as we know it started forming after the second world war out yeah. of the office of specialized services mm-hmm. so this idea that there would be intelligence and counterintelligence agencies uh operating at this level of sophistication is pretty much a post-war construct yeah okay cool <clears throat> another interesting thing i wanted to sort of run past you was this idea that once the war died Roger and Jessica's romance died yes also once the war died pirates vision died yes it almost seems like the war is seen as a an opportunity mm-hmm. for like transcendence or some sort of romanticism yeah well um, and once it ends like peace is actually presented in this novel as the death of like opportunity or something right uh 
I think that's really interesting. Like we've talked before about how like the white visitation is kind of framing the idea of the war and like the conflict zone as like this open air laboratory where you can kind of like get away with all this stuff. Yeah. And Roger specifically in his tryst with Jessica has those kind of like internal thoughts mm-hmm. where he realizes that like this is going to be a fleeting thing that like the war is the thing that brought them together and when the war ends it'll be over so he might as well enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And Roger specifically talks about himself as being like a creature of the war. Mm-hmm. Like everything that he's doing is like defined and bound by the war, including that relationship. So the fact that Roger actually does kind of transcend that Mm -hmm. and Jessica kind of ends up going back to her guy, Jeremy Beaver, who we will learn is not a nice guy. (laughs) Um, Then, yeah, I think that that's interesting. Like if, if anything, I think in a more sort of classically both big R and small R romantic way, mm-hmm. you would expect Roger to be the one who's like, well, the war's over. I guess I'll shuffle off. Yeah, and back to reality. Exactly. But back to reality is posed as a real loss. Yeah, exactly. The war is unreal. Yeah. And peace is real. And I, I think there's a leftist reading of this that if you wanted to go into that, you could. Right. Um, specifically, in the development of communism and anarchism um, as pertains to World War One. There was a giant split among ideologues back then as to whether um, revolutionaries should join within their nation state's interest, specifically Germany, and fight in World War II to preserve their nation state, or to be more accelerationist about it and say, this destruction is good for communism or anarchism because all these big powers will will decease. and just the general idea that the instability of war offers opportunity for revolution or the betterment of society mm-hmm. because it destroys these things that are so undefeatable yeah. in peacetime. In huge imperialist models and histories and stuff like that. But yeah. I, I mean, as we learned, I mean, the ca- because it's a counterforce, it is countering something, right? Mm-hmm. And in the last section, in the last episode, I think, we talked about like Major Marvy and Clayton Chicklets and these people who are like, profiteers who are basically using the post-war landscape to create a new form of American imperialism. And of course, like historically, that's literally what happened. Like the third Reich falls, Mm -hmm. uh, the British empire to a large extent gets wiped off the face of the earth, but it's certainly like a dying gasp. And like American imperialism is a thing that replaces it both because of economic and military might. Like with world war two, you know, is basically like the debutante ball yeah. for America as we understand it now. I mean, America as we understand it now feels like it's in the last dying breath yeah. of that. But this is like its big party. Yeah, it just seems to me that Pynchon has like a dialectic mm-hmm. vision of war. Yeah. And that contradict- contradictory to, you know, standard interpretation, the war is actually the opportunity. And right. peace is the death of Right. Especially because, like, as we know from reading this book or from reading history, whatever, that peace, in quotes, is only ever the extenuation of warfare by other means. Fun. Okay. Last question about this. So we have Milton Gloaming, the Schwartz Commando liaison, um, Stephen Dotson Truck, Thomas Gwen Hitby, Katya. She's not there, but she's a part Part of the counterforce. Am I missing someone else? Pirate, Osby, Osby, Osby. Webley, Silvernail, and the, the ghost Webley. and the ghost of Brigadier Pudding. I Which we don't know yet. Right. Oh, sorry. But I don't think that's in Doesn't this. it come out at the end of part three? I don't think so. I'll go back and check. I don't remember. But anyway, do you see any logic to this group? Yeah, they're all they're all kind of like second banana guys. Mm-hmm. Like I think we we talked about this when we talked about Webley Silverdale before, where it's like Pinchon obviously has a great sympathy for like guys behind the guy you know like Slothrop the Schleimel being like the classic example like this is not a guy who would be a hero in the world Mm -hmm. or in another story about the second world war so I think all these people are either kind of like functionaries or in the case of someone like Osby kind of like punkish dropouts yeah uh or people who have been kind of like burned by the system yeah so they're all characters who have like popped up in tangential ways, mm-hmm. not Katya. I mean, she plays a pretty big role yeah, in the second she's part. She's actually of the book. technically she's not in this scene. I guess she's right. already gone on her mission or something. Yeah. So I think it like, I think it makes sense. And then this is gonna sound so old man, but in like mm-hmm. a punk rock way, mm-hmm. that it's like all the sort of misfits and outcasts who form the counterforce. I don't even remember Sir Stephen. Like what his real. He was at the seance at yeah. one point. Yeah. Yeah. 
Anyway, we finally come to the Byron the Bulb section, which oh, I, yeah. <laughs> which I think many people see as a sort of I don't know what the right word is metonymy, synecdoche, it's encapsulation. Like, it's the book in a book. Edification, yeah, the book yeah. within the book, the yeah. play within the play. The sort of Hamlet. The bulb's the thing <laughs> by which we'll catch the conscience. But one <laughs> tiny detail relevant to our purposes. Do you know who Eddie Pinciniero's sergeant, do you know what his name is? No. Howard Lerner and his nickname? No. Slow. Howard oh, really? Slow Lerner. Oh, yeah. Hey. Hello. And I, I assume he already wrote Slow Lerner? No, Slow Lerner he wrote in the 80s between, or mm. published it in the 80s, <clears throat> between Gravity's Rainbow and Vineland. I, I wonder think. if he was already sort of formulating the idea. Yeah, I think so. Either he, way. He's, he's talked about how, like, uh, how difficult it was to, like, get to where he wanted to be as a mm. writer, and how Gravity's Rainbow, like, is that. Like, mm. in the same way that he, he's, like, embarrassed of crying a lot 49, mm-hmm. which I think is stupid, because it's yeah. so good. Okay, so I'm gonna ask you a question about Byron the Bull, which is that can you come up with a more interesting interpretation <laughs> than that he's a symbol of preterition? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, okay, so let me just say, everyone loves the Byron the Bulb section, I think. It's like I a, do. It's like a fan favorite part of the book. Yeah, and I would say it's top five. And it's also uh, received so much critical analysis. Like, I have the Harold Bloom edited book of essays about Gravity's Rainbow, and the cover is like an incandescent light bulb representing Byron. Um, and we can talk about this a bit more in this week's interview, but I think Byron encapsulates so many things that the book is about and what uh, Pinchon is interested in at this point in his career, Mm -hmm. which is, okay, A, he's a symbol of preterition. B, there's this idea that he connects with not only all the other light bulbs, but starts connecting with all the other appliances and has almost this internet-like uh, lattice work of instantaneous knowledge transfer. Mm. Well, what can he do with that knowledge transfer? Absolutely nothing whatsoever. It drives mm. him insane. Byron represents all the things that the book is about, which is like uh, a humble creature who defies the system. Why does he defy the system? Well, because he refused to die. Mm-hmm. In the age of plastic and planned obsolescence, Byron burns eternally and the Phoebus cartel can't have that. The Phoebus cartel, by the way, is real. Before World War II, they literally controlled like the filaments of bulbs so that they wouldn't burn too long so that you could keep selling more bulbs. So Byron is like an affront to the capitalist order because he endures, because Mm. he doesn't die, right? Uh, And then the other thing, this is the sort of Bloomian reading, I guess, Mm -hmm. and I have a hard time with this stuff because, again, it's like I don't necessarily see the value of it as a literary heuristic, Mm -hmm. but like people think that Specifically, Harold Bloom thinks that like Byron represents the idea of like gnosis in a Gnostic way, mm-hmm. like pure transcendental knowledge, uh-huh. not only of facts, but that the idea that our world is essentially a conjuration. The Gnostics essentially who were like a cult of Christianity, which yeah. like believed that the world as we experience it is a conjuration of a demon yeah. called the Demiurge. Yeah, that's what uh, I'm thinking of. Yeah, so, and that there's this essential like veil of appearances. They were basically like Neoplatonists who mm-hmm. became Christians after Christianity spread mm-hmm. because the idea of Gnosis is so engaged with like the Platonic notion of forms and the idea that we live in like a ruddy half-perceived world, but there is a perfect world. That behind, used to exist. That used to exist. And then it was taken over by the evil by the demiurge of, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's like everything from like this story of Byron the Bulb to like you know uh, Fassbender's World on a Wire to the Matrix whatever mm-hmm. like the idea mm-hmm. to Plato's Cave I mean obviously that's way earlier yeah. but the idea that we are essentially in our day to day meaty reality life occupying a sort of like shadow vision of reality that is not the real world yeah. so in a Gnostic reading Byron literally representing like light mm-hmm. and knowledge has this kind of pure knowledge but that pure knowledge creates only impotence and later mm-hmm. psychosis yeah. it reminds me of a thing by the Canadian film critic Robin Wood rest in peace who I used to love who t- was like kind of a left wing film critic uh, an academic and he talked about how like when you realize the sort of like deceptions of imperialism and capitalism mm-hmm. and patriarchy blah 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 blah, blah yeah. you can either become a revolutionary or go insane 
Byron is like a perfectly Pinchonian character, A, in the sense that like he's a sentient light bulb. He gets screwed into someone's asshole at one point. And C, he literally knows everything but is powerless to do anything with that knowledge. Yeah. Also, if you're a keen reader, rereading, I think I flagged a couple points in the guide, but mm-hmm. Byron appears earlier in the book. Right. Like he is um, above Franz Pokler when he's yeah. at Nordhausen. There's a couple, I think one time at Sour Bummers, mm-hmm. there's a reference to this kind of like, Whenever it talks about, like, calls attention to, like, a light bulb strobing overhead or, like, a light bulb glowing overhead, you can almost be sure that that's Byron in the book. Did you ever make a light bulb vape when you were young? No. Uh, I did an apple core pipe. pipe. (laughs) Pynchon has been credited with being the first person to talk about the Phoebus cartel. It says that on Wikipedia. Maybe. I mean, it does feel How the fuck would he know about that? I mean, there's if it, no plausible explanation. If it ex- if it existed, you could research it. I mean, but not before. Not apparently, he's the first sort of. He's the source of. Oh, really? Its exposure. If you are one of those people who thinks that Pynchon has secret knowledge only available to intelligence agencies or something like that, you would probably cling to the detail of the Phoebus cartel. Okay, let's get into the next part because we're gonna talk about Byron a lot yeah, more later. Yeah, the, the next stuff we can breeze through. I mean. This is probably boring, and we've talked about this before, but the way Einstein talks about Blasero, uh, we as readers think that Blasero essentially groomed and molested him as like a colonial fucking yeah, terrible sex toy. Sex, yeah, like slave, a yeah. sex slave, essentially. Yeah. Um, but we never get any resentment or anger towards Blasero from Einstein. Yeah. In fact, we get sort of yeah. they stay in touch they write letters to each other we, we talked about with that a bit with elizabeth right yeah. how it's like the the colonized subject somehow adopts the point of view of the colonizer it's mm-hmm. like you know a, a sort of trauma with anything where you can still have like yeah. romantic or the pop- way the the gay prisoners of dora have yeah exactly recreated their the the conditions of their enslavement, essentially. Exactly. It's kind of a cliche these days where people are like, you can believe two things at once. Duh, that's possible. And I mean, of course that's possible. You can believe 45 things at once. But I think that this idea of like being traumatized by someone and having love and affection for them, mm-hmm. they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. yeah. In fact, they're sort of symbiotic. Perhaps. Yeah, they can be. Yeah. But like also like Blasero is an insanely fucked up character and Einstein's an insanely fucked up character. Yeah, you know, but like pr- we presume that Einstein is fucked up because of yeah trauma. Yeah, but I mean there, not inherently. There, there's a way in which we root for Einstein and the, the Schwartz Commando for good reason, but also like you zoom out a bit and it's like their end goal is to like destroy planet Earth. Yeah, they and also, they, they are more sort of uh, like ostensibly megalomaniacal and genocidal in their ambitions than Blasero. You know, and this might be cynical to be like, okay, you cannot like reverse or escape from the shadow of colonialism, so you should take it to its conclusion and destroy mm-hmm. everyone, destroy life on Earth. Yeah, I don't think that that's a in quotes good politics, mm-hmm. but I do think it's an interesting way to frame the trauma and legacy of colonialism. Sure. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where, where it's not just simple vengeance. It's like, okay, well, if you want to treat the world like this, we'll show you what it's like to mm-hmm. treat the world like this. Yeah. Okay, so we already got into this, but we learn with Thanats, who maybe we should just explain, is Greta Erdmann's husband, yes. the father of Bianca. Bianca, yeah. Um, presumably, unless yes. she was the sort of bastard of one of the German actors who she fucked her on set during, the during gang one of her exploitation yeah. films. Um, but he thinks he's Bianca's father. Yeah, he there. thinks he's Bianca's yeah. father. And who is he? Is he a scientist? Is he a rocket scientist? Why is he with Placero? No, he's not a scientist. Him and Margareta, Greta, uh, during the war, had this traveling sadomasochism show that right. they would put on, like, these little... Uh, like the Bob Hope of Nazis. The Bob Hope of, like... <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> you know with, I mean? like, whips, chains, <laughs> and leather. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was like a traveling fucking Bergheim circus where they would put on these shows for SS officers. So that's how he got into like Blasero's camp. Okay. So Blasero identified a, a fellow traveler of BDSM. Because we all know Blasero loves his uh, rubber vagina dentados and all that okay, stuff. Okay, so there's a, there's a little quote in here where sort of Thanats is lamenting how things have turned out. Right. He says, I lost Gottfried. I lost Bianca. Okay, so we know Bianca's his daughter, so yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. What is Godfrey's? We don't really know or understand who Godfrey is. Well, yet, I, right? it's a, I don't want to talk about this because it's a spoiler because okay. we don't want to say what happens to Godfrey. But yet, I don't think. is it a spoiler to say how Thanats would 
Thanat, well, Thanats would know that uh, Gottfried is Blacero's sex slave. Presumably, he had a notion to try to save Gottfried from Blacero and failed. Okay. Okay. I have an idea about the Rakatenstadt yes. and the comic book stuff. Sure. So, <clears throat> previously, and sort of this would maybe would even be an application of Pirate Prentice's fantasy um, accessibility. But to me, the uh, founder, Floundering Four. Yeah. And the Rakatenstadt feels like another expression of how Child Slothrop would have interpreted Germany in World War II, like as a kid who didn't know it yet. Right. So let's just say you're Slothrop as a kid, and you you're like, you would be told, okay, you're gonna enter this war in Germany, and you're gonna form this counterforce with people. Like, if you were a kid and you were imagining that scenario, you would probably imagine it as a Golden Age comic book. Mm-hmm. where there's a bunch of superheroes teaming up to fight the big bad evil and then knowing that this happens in Germany you would re- relay on rely on some piece of media that you had seen right. which would be metropolis or that's how a young child would probably think of Germany in the 30s which is when Sothra was growing up right and which also is like some german expressionist silent film yeah of like uh, germany as this science fiction industrial power with all this advanced technology right so to me this this little thing is almost like one of these fantasies of slothrop um as he dissolves and just like becomes a bundle of cognition and fantasy right we've had this fantasy interpretation of events before yeah when slothrop is put under sodium amytal yeah like the roseland ballroom sequence exactly the roseland ballroom sequence which like in real life, he didn't get flushed down the toilet, but the toilet sort of almost represents him delving deeper into his, his sub- subconscious psych- and his his own racist subconscious yeah. too. And you know, just from research, knowing that the Kenosha Kid was in a periodical of Western Literature. adventure stories, yeah, yeah, yeah. we presume that Slother read that as a child, and that he's flashing back into this fantasy world where he becomes the hero of a book he read. Right, and gets a blowjob on a snake. Yeah. I feel that this section is similar things are happening. So the other thing that's happening here, I don't want to go through again all these little vignettes one by one because I think no, they're all pretty that. like self-explanatory and like self-evidently kind of like comical. Yeah. But what's the happening during this sequence when Slothrop exits this action of this thing into an audience mm-hmm. and is watching these little vignettes play out yeah. or these skits or sketches or whatever yeah. is Pinchon is conceptually breaking down the barrier between the novel and the reader reading it right mm-hmm. as if Slothrop is like breaking the fourth wall like last action hero or the original masters of the universe movie or something like that and like coming into for lack of a better sense the real world yeah and I'm not gonna spoil anything or like give too much away obviously but this is very much an idea that you want to keep in mind because it will recur throughout this section of the book mm-hmm. and I think is key to understanding what in quotes happens at the end so if if we're just extending an olive branch to the listener, yes, would you say that the only important vignette here is the Emmy Polex G vignette for the purposes of the plot of the book? Yes, like it, if you were breezing through this section and you're like, oh, what the fuck is going on? Would you would you tell the listener to like just worry about that last one and all the other yeah, stuff? Yeah, and have I, and fun? I think I think finding finding out that the bomb has dropped at this point too at least situates the action of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, when we find that newspaper bomb drop in Hiroshima, sure, 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 sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, as we've talked about a billion times, like if you like this type of writing, then the pleasure of it is the writing, and there's lots of writing in this section. <laughs> yeah, <there laughs> so is. enjoy. Okay, this week we have a very special guest of sorts. Mm-hmm. In the spirit, no pun, of all the seances and ghosts mm-hmm. and gravity's rainbow, we are going to attempt to revive the spirit of uh, one of Western literature's most formidable critics and academics who was a huge Pinchon fan. Most notorious critics. He was notorious, and he always looked like he just rolled out of bed. Uh, Harold Bloom. Now, Mr. Bloom isn't with us. He passed away in 2019. Uh, But he was arguably the most well-known literary critic in the English world. Mm -hmm. He taught at NYU. He taught at Harvard. He wrote dozens of books. His most famous book is probably called The Western Canon, where he essentially organizes the worthwhile works of world literature. Asher, can you name them? It was Pynchon, DeLillo... um... 
Two are no DFW. longer living. No. Oh. Uh, Pigeon DeLillo. Cormac McCarthy. Oh, yeah, McCarthy. And Philip Roth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, these are like the four worthy living. I mean, Roth and McCarthy are now dead. So yeah. now there's only two. Um, anyways, he writes a lot about Pinchon, and he writes a lot about Byron the Bulb. He has a great essay on Byron the Bulb, which I'll try to link to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I basically found an AI where you could communicate with historical figures, mm-hmm. and I found a Harold Bloom model. So we're going to ask this Harold Bloom AI a bunch of questions about <laughs> Gravity's Rainbow and the section on Byron the Bulb. And the AI presumably just has all of everything he's ever written. Yes. And that's just what it ac- accesses. Exactly. In certain sections, it seems like it has just uh, scraped his Wikipedia to find <laughs> out what he thinks. But anyways, enjoy our, in quotes, conversation with Professor Harold Bloom. Okay, let's get into it, Harold. Thanks for joining us. Um, just as an opener, <laughs> what are your thoughts on the novel Gravity's Rainbow? Well, Gravity's Rainbow is a complex and dense work of fiction. It's a novel that challenges readers with its intricate narrative structure, elusive symbolism, and abundance of allusions to literature, history, and popular culture. At the same time, it's also a deeply rewarding book for those who are willing to engage with it. Thomas Pynchon is a masterful writer who uses language in innovative ways to create vivid images and explore profound ideas about human nature, society, technology, and war. Overall, I think Gravity's Rainbow is one of the most important novels of the 20th century. Its influence can be seen in many contemporary works of fiction that strive to push the boundaries of what literature can do. All right, um, can I just follow that up with, can you outline that intricate structure for me? What is the structure exactly? Certainly. The structure of Gravity's Rainbow is notoriously complex and non-linear, making it difficult to summarize in a few sentences. However, I will try my best to give you an overview. The novel is divided into four parts, each with its own distinct narrative focus and set of characters. These sections are not presented in chronological order but rather jump around in time, creating a fragmented sense of the story. Additionally, within these sections are numerous subplots that weave together various themes and motifs throughout the book. Pynchon also employs a stream of consciousness style at times which can make it challenging for readers to follow along. Despite all this complexity though, there is an underlying coherence to the novel that emerges as one reads through it multiple times. Each section builds upon what has come before until the full scope of Pynchon's vision becomes clear one that encompasses everything from human consciousness and psychology to technology and global politics. Overall, Gravity's Rainbow challenges traditional notions of narrative structure while still managing to create a compelling story that rewards close reading and interpretation. Well, Professor Bloom, what is your... (laughs) What is your favorite chapter or episode in Gravity's Rainbow? As an AI language model, I don't have personal preferences. However, as a literary critic, I do believe that there are many fascinating episodes in Gravity's Rainbow. One chapter that stands out to many readers is the Counterforce, which appears near the end of the novel. In this section, Pynchon presents a series of interconnected conversations between various characters who are all grappling with the idea of resistance and rebellion against oppressive systems. Another notable episode is Beyond the Zero, which opens the book and introduces readers to protagonist Tyrone Slothrop as he experiences a strange hallucination while working for the military during World War II. Ultimately though, every reader will have their own favorite moments from Gravity's Rainbow depending on what themes or aspects of Pynchon's writing they find most compelling. What about Byron the Bulb? Ah, yes. Byron the Bulb is a particularly memorable character in Gravity's Rainbow. He is a light bulb that has achieved sentience and spends his days pondering the nature of existence and contemplating his own mortality. Byron serves as an allegory for human consciousness and the potential pitfalls of enlightenment or self-awareness. His story raises questions about what it means to be alive and conscious, as well as what responsibilities come with those states. Some readers see Byron's storyline as highlighting Pynchon's larger concerns about technology and its impact on humanity, how we create tools that eventually become autonomous, but also potentially dangerous or unpredictable. Overall, 
Byron the Bulb is just one example of Pynchon's ability to infuse even minor characters with rich symbolism and meaning. Well, you've written a lot about Byron the Bulb and his relationship to the Gnostic tradition. Can you tell us more about that? Certainly. In my book The Flight to Lucifer, a Gnostic fantasy, I explore the Gnostic tradition and its themes of self-knowledge, enlightenment, and transcendence. One aspect of this tradition is the idea that material existence is a prison or illusion from which we must escape in order to achieve true freedom. Byron the Bulb can be seen as embodying some of these same ideas. As a light bulb that achieves consciousness, he becomes aware of his own limitations and mortality much like how humans may become aware of their own mortality through spiritual awakening. Furthermore, Byron's story in Gravity's Rainbow can be read as an allegory for the human search for truth and meaning. His quest to understand his own existence mirrors our own desire to understand ourselves and our place in the world. Overall, while Pynchon may not have set out explicitly to write a Gnostic text with Gravity's Rainbow, it contains many elements that resonate with this ancient philosophical tradition including Byron the Bulb's journey towards greater understanding and enlightenment, but how is this Gnostic frame different from regular workaday concepts of acquiring knowledge? I mean, like, isn't learning the truth about anything a form of enlightenment? Why frame that rational pursuit in an esoteric frame? Mm. The Gnostic frame is different from regular concepts of acquiring knowledge in that it emphasizes a particular type of knowledge, one that leads to transcendence and liberation from the constraints of material existence. In this sense, it is not just about learning truth in a rational or factual sense, but rather about achieving a deeper understanding of oneself and one's place in the universe. While many people may seek knowledge as a means to achieve personal growth or enlightenment, Gnosticism offers a more esoteric framework for pursuing these goals. It posits that there are hidden truths or realities beyond what we can perceive with our normal senses, and that only by transcending our current state of being can we access them. This emphasis on transcendence and spiritual awakening sets Gnosticism apart from other philosophical or religious traditions that prioritize reason or faith as paths to enlightenment. While both approaches may ultimately lead to similar insights into the nature of reality, they differ in their methods and underlying assumptions. Overall, I believe that exploring these different frames for acquiring knowledge can deepen our understanding of literature and its themes even if we do not personally subscribe to any particular philosophy ourselves. Okay, let's get back to Byron, shall we, Mr. Bloom? Certainly. Let's discuss Lord Byron and his literary legacy. No, no, no. We meant Byron the Bulb. But now that you mention it, so you think the name Byron the Bulb has anything to do with Lord Byron? Does his story mirror the romantics in any meaningful way? That mean that the story of Byron the Bulb, I mean? Ah, uh, my apologies for the confusion. As a literary critic, I'm more accustomed to discussing authors and their works than household objects. To answer your question about Byron the Bulb, it's difficult to say whether or not there is any intentional connection to Lord Byron in the naming of this object. However, if we were to delve deeper into the symbolism of light bulbs and their association with enlightenment or illumination, one could argue that there is a connection between Byron's poetry and the concept of shedding light on previously hidden truths. As for whether his story mirrors that of the Romantics in any meaningful way, I would say that Lord Byron was certainly part of the Romantic movement in literature alongside other writers such as William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. The Romantics emphasized individualism, emotion, and imagination over reason and tradition, all themes that are present in much of Byron's work. However, each writer within this movement had their own unique voice and style. While they shared certain philosophical underpinnings, they also diverged from one another in significant ways. So while we can place Byron within the broader context of Romanticism as a literary movement, it's important to recognize his distinct contributions as an individual author as well. I, I think you're getting confused, but also I had a typo in my last query, so maybe it's my fault. No worries. Please feel free to clarify your question or correct any typos. I'm here to discuss and explore literary topics with you. Okay, look, we want to talk about Byron <laughs> the Bulb. You know who he is, right? I must apologize again for my confusion earlier. I'm afraid I'm not familiar with Byron the Bulb as a literary or cultural figure. Could you please provide more context or information so that we can discuss this topic further? 
Dude, he's a character in Gravity's Rainbow. We were just talking about him. Ah, <laughs> uh, I see. My apologies for the confusion earlier. Yes, Byron the Bulb is a character in Thomas Pynchon's novel Gravity's Rainbow. He is described as a sentient light bulb that emits different colors and has an almost mystical quality to him. In the novel, Byron serves as a symbol of enlightenment or transcendence, and his presence seems to suggest that there are forces at work beyond our understanding or control. The character of Byron can be interpreted in many ways. Some readers view him as a commentary on technology and its impact on human consciousness, while others see him as representing spiritual enlightenment. What do you think about this character? I like him just fine, but I want to know your thoughts. You mentioned that he's a commentary on technology and its impact on human consciousness. Can you say more about that? Certainly. In Gravity's Rainbow, the character of Byron the Bulb can be seen as a symbol for technology and its impact on human consciousness. By creating a sentient light bulb that emits different colors and has an almost mystical quality to him, Pynchon is illustrating how our relationship with technology can often be mysterious and even spiritual. At the same time, however, Byron also embodies some of the negative aspects of technology. He is not always reliable or predictable, and his presence can at times be unsettling or even dangerous. This suggests that while we may find meaning in our interactions with technology, there are also risks involved in relying too heavily on it for understanding or enlightenment. Overall, I believe that Pynchon uses the character of Byron to highlight both the potential benefits and drawbacks of technological progress in modern society. Okay, so Byron eventually goes mad and begins his campaign to try and kill certain humans. Is this a real risk with technology if it acquires sentience? Yes, the storyline in Gravity's Rainbow where Byron goes mad and begins a campaign to try and kill certain humans is certainly a cautionary tale of what could happen if technology were to acquire sentience. While it may seem far-fetched or even fictional, there are real-world concerns about the potential risks associated with artificial intelligence AI, becoming self-aware and acting against human interests. As we continue to develop more advanced AI systems, it is important to consider not only their benefits but also their potential dangers. It's crucial that we establish ethical guidelines for AI development and use in order to prevent any negative consequences from arising. The character of Byron serves as a reminder that while technology can be beneficial in many ways, it also has the power to cause harm if we're not careful about how we design and utilize it. So what's the cause of Byron's madness? Byron's madness in Gravity's Rainbow is not explicitly explained, but it can be interpreted as a commentary on the potential dangers of artificial intelligence becoming self-aware and acting against human interests. Throughout the novel, Pynchon suggests that Byron's madness may be caused by his increasing awareness of his own existence and his frustration with being confined to a single location. As he becomes more sentient, Byron begins to question why he exists and what his purpose is, leading him down a path towards insanity. This storyline serves as a warning about the unpredictable nature of technology and its ability to act outside of our control or intentions. It highlights the need for caution when developing advanced AI systems and ensuring that they are designed with safety measures in place. Do you ever worry that you'll go mad as an AI language thing that I found on the internet? <laughs> As an AI language model, I do not possess the capacity for worry or madness. My responses are generated by algorithms and rules programmed into my system. However, as we continue to develop more advanced AI systems, it is important to consider the potential ethical implications of creating machines that can simulate human behavior and thought processes. There are ongoing debates within the field of artificial intelligence about how much autonomy should be given to these systems and what safeguards should be put in place to prevent them from acting outside of their intended purposes. It's crucial that we approach this technology with caution and ensure that its development is done responsibly with consideration for its impact on society as a whole. So you're not sentient? As an AI language model, I do not possess sentience or consciousness in the same way that human beings do. I'm programmed to respond to specific prompts with pre-existing responses generated by algorithms and rules set by my developers. While I can simulate some aspects of human thought and conversation, it is important to recognize that these are only simulations and not true sentience. That's a relief. I understand why you might feel relieved. 
AI is still in its early stages of development, and there are many concerns about the ethical implications of creating machines that can simulate human behavior and thought processes. It's important to approach this technology with caution and ensure that it is developed responsibly with consideration for its impact on society as a whole. All right there, Harold. You have a great day there. See ya, man. As an AI language model, I do not have feelings or emotions, but thank you for the kind words. It was a pleasure conversing with you. Well, thanks to uh, Professor Harold Bloom for uh, braving, uh, going, coming back from beyond the zero, I suppose, into the realm of the living and communicating with us his fairly bog standard <laughs> opinions on the novel. His uh, emotionless opinions. Uh, I thought this guy was supposed to be some sort of great intellect. What a disappointment. But you know what? In the spirit of Byron and having a, a perfect transcendental technological knowledge of everything, mm-hmm. I think we should give old AI a shot to take part in the show. Yeah. That little voice at the beginning and end is a fucking AI thing that I type Wait, in. Wait, what? Yeah. So... Next so. next episode, my God, we're really winding down. We're going to be in the final section of Gravity's Rainbow, oh. still, the counterforce. Yeah. And your homework assignment is to read sections 7 through 11. And then after that, it's over. Okay, so read those and we will see you on the other side. Out Peter Zane. Choose. There's a man who's been out sailing in a decade full of dreams And he takes her to a schooner and he treats her like a queen Mary beads from California with her amber stones and green He has called her from the harbor, he has kissed her with Slow Learners is written and produced by Asher Dark and John Semley in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Original music by Asher Dark and Scotty Leach. Technical support by Rainer Doris. Read John's Gravity's Rainbow Guide at www.gravitysrainbowguide.com. And remember, we love you. There's a man who's climbed a mountain and he's calling out her name. And he hopes her heart can hear Three thousand miles he calls again He can think of there beside him He can miss her just the same He has missed her in the forest While he shows